1: You're listening to The Economist Asks, I'm Anne McElvoy. Margaret Thatcher was one of the strongest and most divisive characters in modern British history. Her three terms as Prime Minister from 1979 to 1990 covered turbulent years in Britain's relationship with the world, from the Falklands War to the miners' strike, the end of South African apartheid and, of course, the Cold War. But it was the European question that came to dominate her last years in office. Her growing Euroscepticism widened rifts on the subject in the Conservative Party. And in her final years in power, the subject of how much sovereignty Britain should keep or cede to Europe began to dominate the agenda. So this week, as Boris Johnson presents a new leaving deal to the EU, we're asking, did Margaret Thatcher pave the way for Brexit? My guest today knows the woman dubbed the Iron Lady as well as anyone else alive. Charles Moore covered her premiership as a columnist... ...and then as editor of The Spectator magazine. He went on to become editor... ...of the conservative-supporting Daily Telegraph newspaper. Mrs Thatcher chose him to write her biography... ...on the strict condition that it be published only after her death. That work has taken the best part of 22 years. Its third and final volume, Herself Alone... ...chronicles her last term and her fall from power... ...when she couldn't resist the temptation in her own fateful words, to go on and on. Charles Moore, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. Hello. So this week, we have heard the first details of a proposed deal by Boris Johnson. Broadly speaking, is Boris's approach now a deal that Margaret Thatcher would have considered supporting?
0: Well, I always refuse to speculate um, because my theory about Mrs Thatcher is that I know what she did do. I, I don't know more than anybody else what she might. I think that... There's a great question mark as to whether this is what the Brexiteers think they should get. Even now, it's unclear.
1: Broadly speaking, under the plan, Northern Ireland would leave the customs union with the European Union, along with the rest of the United Kingdom. There would be quite complicated customs checks. If the deal isn't done, he says, we'll leave without a deal. Is that, in the end, where the Brexit saga was always going to end up? Big picture.
0: The question is, is no deal a sort of debating point in the argument, you know, uh, uh, something you, you need to be seen to have, but you are trying to avoid? Or is it actually where we'll end up? I think the government is sincere in um, that if they got this deal, they would try to take it. I think it'd be very difficult for them, by the way, because I think a lot of Brexiteers wouldn't like it. I think it is sincere. However, it has to build, build into its mind the real possibility of no deal. And in some ways, there'll be politically, political advantages in having no deal for the government. So it still remains extremely hard to read properly.
1: You know Boris Johnson very well. You've been his editor indeed. The idea (laughs) of being Boris Johnson's boss, how was that, by the way?
0: Uh, Well, it was a nightmare, of course, because Boris always being so late, I mean, terribly late with copy. um, And you wouldn't really know what he's going to write about until what you thought would be after he'd written it, but actually was, in fact, before he'd written it because he was so late with it. Um, But, of course, he was a journalistic genius is a journalistic genius and I think some of that gift is there in his political approach everything about Boris is to do with the surprise he can pull off this means he's transformative politically it's high risk but I've always kept saying over the years when people say Boris is really finished now I I have always maintained the view that though he can cause terrible trouble he pops up again. He somehow gets through it. And when you think he's down, he's up. And to some extent, vice versa. What
1: do you think he really wants from this Brexit process? You suggested that he may need, and this is a, a common trope in the argument, you need to threaten no deal to get a deal. People argue about that. The economist takes a view overall that this is is too high, high risk a way uh, of dealing with Britain and its future. But if he could choose, what would he have?
0: I think he, if he could choose, he would have as much Brexit as you could get away with. Um, because he doesn't agree with the proposition that um, these things are ultimately highly damaging, that the the freer we are, the better. And the question is, how much of that can you pull off?
1: Let's dive into the roots of of some of this, which takes us to the third volume of your biography of Margaret Thatcher. When she asked you to be her authorised biographer, what were the words that she used. I'm just curious about that conversation. Uh, Well,
0: the the famous way in which Mrs. Thatcher appointed people to anything, if you could call this an appointment, by the time you see her, she she already thinks you've agreed to it. So, whether you have or not. So, she doesn't say, please, would you do it? She just said, you know, well, I hope you'll start next week or whatever. Um, And you said... uh, (laughs) Well, you see, Mrs. Thatcher was a very, very vague person in, in an odd way. If she wanted something to happen, she would ask for it to happen and then have no particular idea about a structure of a piece of work. If she pointed someone Chancellor of the Exchequer or something, she never gave a job description. She just said, I hope you'd like to be Chancellor of the Exchequer. That's um, interesting because one
1: thinks of her and the whole trope of the Iron Lady yes. sounds as if she told people exactly what to do.
0: No, she wasn't. It's funny. She was incredibly um, powerful personality but not a control freak.
1: And what do we know about her after three volumes of your intense sort of archaeology of for Thatcher years. What do we know that we didn't know before about her character, her flaws?
0: One of the funny things about biography, I think, is that you often come back to what you begin with. So you go through immense uh, complication and detail and discovery, and you often come up with an amplified version of the first thing. So one of the big amplifications is the point that she's the first and at the time the only woman. It's so important in understanding how she approached everything, how she got there, why it was difficult, why it was successful, why she had rows with men, why she succeeded with other men, um, how she saw politics and why she wanted to be so distinctive and was so distinctive. And all of that has to do with being the first and only woman. It's a different uh, perception of the political system and of the political game. And it's bringing a new way of looking at public affairs into that system. And she ran the cabinet, for example, in a way that no man would ever have run the Mm, cabinet. I
1: was going to ask you what Um, difference you you thought it made. Because for a lot of feminists, she wasn't the sort of classic progressive feminist.
0: No, she wasn't, but she was a great believer in... uh, She didn't believe in the equality of the sexes. She believed in the superiority of women. Um, And the question was, uh, how was that best asserted? And she thought it was best asserted by capturing everything male, not turning yourself into a male and not ghettoising yourself as a a female, but striding into male territory and capturing it.
1: And to what extent was Margaret Thatcher... A populist. It's a word that we didn't use that, yeah. that word really for, for a long time in British politics. She was from a working class background. She was a, a woman of the people. She could sound very aloof, but she could also sound very direct. What do you think?
0: I think populist would be the wrong word. But I think one of her successes in politics was that the whole time she was in office, when she spoke, she spoke as if she were a member of the public rather than a member of a bureaucracy. So she was very, very good at reducing um, subjects to clarity, Mm -hmm. whether you disagree. Give me an example of that. Um, Well, her whole approach to economics was basically saying these clever men with their theories have got it wrong. And we housewives, because that was much more how you talk about women in those days, we housewives understand the reality of inflation, of budgets, of money management, and we know the truth. And every single word she used would be a clear English word, not a technical word. And she would reach out over the complication of uh, theory of economics to the what does it all really mean? And I think her general tendency to reduce something to what does it all really mean was extremely uh, powerful. This is very popular in the sense of reaching the people. However, very important qualification, she was fascinated by actually governing and by the content of things. And I think what people notice with populist leaders is it in a way they're just expressions of grumbles rather than people who wish to take responsibility themselves. And populists are very rarely people who get down into the nitty gritty of the legislation and the policy. And of course, one thing she was quite happy to do was to be unpopular, which on the whole populists don't like.
1: I did wonder reading the book whether the Mrs. Thatcher I was reading about could have thrived as a Politician, now um, it, it was a world in which a lot could be private. Everything would would leak in a minute, now, wouldn't it? All the yes. over social media, and Twitter would be tearing her apart in day in, day out. Um, <laughs> Absolutely, would it have worked? Now, the style
0: would certainly have had to be different. Um, Mrs. Hatcher often spoke very unguardedly in private, actually, um, and I remember it happening to me um, just after the Rome summit in October 1990, which sort of provoked her fall. I went to a drinks party there and she she knew me and she knew I was a journalist and everything, but she just comes over and says, I think we should have an election and it should be about whether we wish to be ruled by ourselves or by Europe. And she moved in a few weeks to talking about a referendum. You know, that's sort of great big splash in a newspaper. And she's just saying it, not exactly casually, but not intending to leak it. She's just sort of pushing the idea because it's a big thing in her head and she's having a private conversation you can't imagine any of that now, that would be I would have rushed out of the room and tweeted it or given it to my news editor or whatever but the rules were much clearer then and you're told something on those terms and you respect it.
1: That's very interesting you bring up the question of a referendum or an election dressed up as a referendum or the other way around, because that's exactly where we are now. So let's uh, put our headline question to you. Does the Brexit process that we're in at the moment, does it have its roots in the Thatcher era?
0: Of course, its deepest roots are earlier than that, but it does have its roots in the Thatcher era because her disillusionment with the European community was a key factor in changing everything. Uh, When you began to cover European issues as a journalist in the early 80s, they weren't very controversial. We had voted to stay in in 75, and things were chugging on not very well, but, you know. And then Mrs. Thatcher got more and more annoyed with the European community uh, through a series of things in the 80s, which culminated in her fury with Jacques Delors for trying to create much more of a United States of Europe and a single currency, and as she saw it, um, trying to bring about more socialism. And she greatly raised the game by blowing these issues open instead of the previous British tendency to play them down. And she did this in the Bruges speech, which is not an anti-European speech in 1988, but is a Eurosceptic speech. She wanted this to be a public argument. This was very new. And it turned out to strike a chord in Britain, which is partly why she did it, because she knew that the public was much more Eurosceptic than the elites. She knew that already. Very much so, yes. She was really, really worried that the The glory of winning the Cold War was going to be dissipated by creating a United States of Europe, which Germany dominated. And she saw those issues as linked. This was wildly controversial on the international scene and discredited her with a lot of world leaders, but also opened up an important argument that went on in Britain. And that's where she started to move even before she left office into the referendum argument, which she argued in the leadership battle, which forced her out. She argued it. And the referendum in her mind at that point was on the single currency. But the way she expressed it was similar issues to what we're all arguing about now. And this entered political DNA because political parties didn't dare not promise a referendum, even though they didn't want it. And through a whole series of iterations and delays... It became the referendum that we had in 2016.
1: Uh, Charles Pohl, her most trusted foreign affairs advisor, said in an interview a couple of years ago that Mrs Thatcher would definitely have voted to remain. Was he right?
0: I don't think you can be right or wrong about a speculation. She wasn't actually confronted with that question. I know what she thought about the question as it confronted her. And she came to the view that we should leave in office. She did not come to that view.
1: Your own position on... Brexit is what we call a Brexiteer. You've strongly argued for leaving the European Union. Do you think that we will?
0: Can I say in parenthesis, Anne, that it's very important to me that history is different from commentary and I'm a political commentator, but the history of Margaret Thatcher is history and I'm not trying to make an argument for or against Brexit in the history and it's very important to such a different mode of thinking.
1: Fair point. To, but To, to answer one, your question, as, as
0: not no. as the biographer of Margaret Thatcher, but as a observer of the scene, I think the dynamic of a massive popular vote is so great that we will end up Brexiting. But um, also the dynamic when you have such a strong push the other way uh, from the elites is that it'll be a fudge. So those are the conflicts. And we're going to see pretty soon where exactly that lies. I think it's unlikely, though not impossible, that we simply remain.
1: It's not impossible?
0: Not impossible, no. I would bet against it, but it's possible.
1: Where does it leave British conservatism? If you flick through some of our coverage in the the Britain... Uh, section, which, whether you agree with it or not, is detailed and, and well-informed. A, a frequent trope that comes through, I think Adrian Waldridge writes it a lot in his Badget column, is that conservatism has stopped being conservative. It's gone a bit bonkers. It's got itself off on a single issue, obsession with Europe, and it is squandering thereby its ability to balance, to drive the country forward by accepting that there is a broad church to conservatism and it's become a single issue party is uh, that well, I, a I, view? I think that's
0: wrongly framed if you have 17.4 million people voting for something they are by definition a broad church and actually they're broader therefore than the other church um, and the idea that the sort of few mad populists who are um, taking over is preposterous this is a majority view in the country um
1: what it is just, tr- they were not ask what kind of Brexit
0: they wanted were they? Uh, well of course you can't do that in a referendum but exactly. then you have, no but that's the point well, you can't do it in a general election really I mean the arguments against having a referendum seem to me almost the same as against having a general election and I'm sure a lot of people in this country would
1: you lay out a manifesto so you do well, give a bit more detail
0: yes, but elections and referendums are not means of governing they're means of eliciting what the public fundamentally want. I think Adrian is um, right that Because this is so all-consuming, not enough thought has been given to a whole load of other things. But it's sort of got to be that way because we have no clear majority for things in the House of Commons. So you have to settle it.
1: The admiration that you feel for Margaret Thatcher is very clear. But does a study of of these years, and particularly the years that lead up to and her very bitter fall, does it reveal something about her shortcomings? And I'm thinking particularly as the society changed because the society that Mm. brought her to power – and what had happened in Britain in the 1970s, and a, a perception widespread of failure and, and of a, a, an overly aggressive uh, left wing and trade union dominance. By the time we get to, to 1990, I was sitting covering the fall of the, the Berlin Wall. This was a time when, in a sense, there was a kind of positive pro Europeanism in the air. I
0: think that's a very important point. In a way, she was the victim of her success. After Reagan, she was the greatest architect of Cold War victory in the West. She also won, basically, the economic and trade union arguments in Britain. Um, So when you get towards the later stage and that success is recognised and accepted, the very combative character of Mrs. Thatcher becomes rather unpopular because I remember her saying at one point, um, there are so many dragons left to slay. And I think the general feeling was, actually, there are a lot of dead dragons lying around. Do we have to keep looking for some more dragons to slay? Couldn't we just calm down a bit? It's called St.
1: George in retirement syndrome. Yes.
0: And, um, And this is why John Major said exactly the right thing to capture that mood when he said he wanted a country at ease with itself when he took over. But There was a feeling of she's succeeded, time for something else. And she, of course, didn't recognize that.
1: The broad economic consensus that she forged, really, a lot of people would would at that word consensus. But I think it would be fair to say someone who covered the Blair years in great detail that there was a sense of you had to accept a lot of, of what she'd done. You didn't try to roll back those changes. The Labour Party dropped its clause for commitment to restoring public ownership of quite a lot of, uh, of industries that had been denationalised, etc. That is again, now in question, isn't it? Perhaps more than we ever thought it would be. Corbynite left in Britain, a a very uh, active, almost socialist left on the march in the United States. So was that sense that she had forged lasting change in the way we look at political economy wrong, and it was much more fragile than we thought?
0: Everything in politics changes a lot between each generation. Uh, I think the fundamental propositions of Thatcherism remain very strong in the sort of to use the word that she hated, but you have yourself used consensus. I think there is one still. Very few people in the world, apart from Jeremy Corbyn, are trying actively to re large sections of um, uh, industry. He's in
1: contention to be prime minister.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's true, but I think it's a blind alley in history, probably. Of course, we're living in the age of the fallout from globalization and particularly the credit crunch. So the questions we actually did interest, Mrs. Thatcher, but were not the same, have arisen about it always arises an economic question, who really benefits? Have the people somehow, or a large section of the people, been fooled and being cheated from the successes of others? In the 70s, this was about trade union leaders and how they were sort of grabbing the spoils and spoiling the economy. And now it's much more about sort of bankers and central bankers and um, top international bureaucrats. But in a way, they are a bit like those trade union leaders because they, they skewed the system in favor of themselves. So the emotions about that are quite similar, but the actual problems are very different. And they were not problems that Mrs. Thatcher uh, had to confront.
1: I know you don't like counterfactuals, but I have to say if I was casting a a fantasy dispatch box House of Commons clash, I think I'd have Jeremy Corbyn and Margaret Thatcher.
0: (laughs) It would be fun. And of course, it did actually happen because he was in the house all that time and was asking lots of um, rude questions. But then he was considered obscure and mad and now... um, uh, He's not obscure anyway.
1: There's one, one subject that you addressed, which I have to say I'd almost sort of forgotten that she took an interest in, which might surprise some some listeners. And this was her advocacy uh, over green issues, a kind of green yes. conservatism, yes. which you just perhaps could just briefly deal with. It has become, I wouldn't say left-wing cause, but a more progressive or left-liberal cause. How serious was she?
0: She was very serious. She made this speech in the Royal Society in 1988 essentially was the first important world leader to make, raise the whole global warming argument. So uninterested were the media that she she had to read the speech out by candlelight in the fishmonger's hall when she gave it because the television refused to film it because they couldn't be bothered. Because she was her interest as a scientist, she had become convinced of the basic theory of um, climate change. And she advocated it very strongly and even more surprisingly for Mrs. Thatcher, she advocated it on an international level. So she was a great supporter, which was just getting off at the ground of the international panel on climate change and the whole, like she wanted it done under the UN umbrella. And so actually, everything she did about this, though she was, was very concerned about possible damage to economic growth, was the classic basic case for global warming. And she repeated it in important speeches. She began to make some legislative change about it. And more than any other world leader of the time, she shaped what the structure that we still have to try and deal with this question. It's remarkable. It's, 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 it's rather it's, fascinating, it, yes, isn't it? Yeah, it's, a, uh, yeah. it's more than
1: a footnote. That yeah. That's a, It's a byway that is very yeah. well worth exploring. So I can't let you go without a bit of gossip because journalists should always gossip together. And you're a former editor of The Spectator, conservative magazine, rather iconoclastic, been in the news this week for its its louche lunches, at which it is alleged that Boris Johnson's subsequent uh, editor, sat in, in that same very battered leather chair, as I remember it, uh, had uh, given an unwelcome attention, indeed put his hand on the, the thigh of a visiting journalist. Is that the sort of world of the spectator that you remember?
0: Well, when I was giving spectator lunches, I don't remember looking under the table, so I didn't see what might have been going on. <laughs> um, but, um, no, I mean, I think... The spectator was, particularly in those days, Boris's days, but also during my time, small, informal, quite drunk, anarchic, uh, and people were much drunker than 1980s, 90s. Um, I remember one lunch of one hour lunches going on till seven o'clock in the evening, for example. Um, and of course, none of that would happen now. I have no idea what happened at the under or on top of the editorial table of Boris Johnson. But I think it, you're talking about an atmosphere which is completely different from... The world of work now.
1: It's not that long ago, is it, Boris no, it Johnson isn't. was editor of the, the, no, no, the Spectator? No, it
0: remarkable how fast all that's changed.
1: But do you think, I mean, let's just stay on this, because it is actually a quite serious allegation. Do you think it is, the, the women trouble in TAG that has now been appended, admittedly, mainly by his foes, of course, to Boris Johnson, do you think it's damaging? Do you think he's misbehaved?
0: On the point about has he misbehaved, I don't know. I think one of the things one has to remember in all these accusations is one just jolly well doesn't know. As to whether it's damaging... I think it's very um, part of this strange cultural polarization that's going on. So half the country will think it's nothing to do with anybody else. And, you know, good old Boris, um, uh, uh, we stick up for him and we don't like all these people lecturing him. And the other half, I mean, I don't know what my statistics are correct, about half and half, will say disgusting, um, you know, offensive. Actually, neither side really knows what it's talking about because the, the facts are very hard to understand. But I think these are two sort of strong cultural elements in our time one is of the more sort of anarchically conservative and the other is of the more sort of um controlling um, and somewhat prim um sort of attitude which is also however quite understandable because of the way women have been treated um so often in the workplace over the years will it damage boris oddly enough it seems to me not to be doing so if you go outside you know what people call the media bubble The thing about Boris is he's a very postmodern figure. He's not just an old-fashioned, you know, appalling Tory groper. He's a very modern figure, uh, oddly. Um, And he can get away with this basic idea about his approach to life, which is, I can do everything differently, everything. And but I think Some of
1: those things might be reprehensible. Yes, absolutely. Whether it's a No, no, I mean, they might
0: well be. Women.
1: Well, there's a slight sense. Yeah. Uh, and I think you know, with people who know and have some appreciation yeah. of Boris Johnson's talents. But I mean, doesn't it just look terribly tacky when your record, by this stage, when you're trying to be Prime Minister and get re elected, is a sort of succession of messy, secretive relationships and behaviours? It's not good, is it? Uh, well,
0: as I say, I don't really know. All I'm saying is that. Um, Boris has a particular way of understanding the zeitgeist, which means that it's very hard to trap him. Um, Some of us have referred to him over the years as the greased albino piglet. It's his way of um, slipping out of a situation, is a sort of form of genius, and it's very postmodern genius. And by the way, it's not actually completely new. I mean, this was very true of Bill Clinton, for example. It's some piece of, I don't know what it is, it's cunning, it's playful, it's... um, naughty it's selfish it's clever
1: you're giving me a free pass really on this one aren't you
0: sort of i mean many don't but you know
1: last thought mrs thatcher on the press Brittle, insubstantial people who criticise others and haven't achieved much in their own <laughs> lives. Guilty. <laughs> I always would love you to say that to me uh, in the tones of, of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> was that really what she what she thought of our trade? Yes,
0: but she also liked some journalists. And what she particularly liked, one of her surprising qualities was that she admired qualities which she did not possess. She would use the word wordsmith. And she claimed to be a bad wordsmith, which I think was true in the written word, though she spoke very well. She'd say, what a wonderful wordsmith he is. And this would be a sort of special gift like being a scientist or um, a nuclear physicist or something. So sort of something she didn't have but did admire.
1: Do you have her voice in your head?
0: Sometimes, yes.
1: <laughs> what do you remember her saying, most?
0: Well, the phrase she... You can
1: channel her if you the feel... Phrase the phrase she the most moment.
0: commonly used to the point we drove you mad with repetition was she'd say, liberty, and not just liberty but law-based
1: liberty. It's a wonderful Mrs Thatcher. Thank you, Charles Moore. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Anne. And we'd love to know what you think. What lessons might we take in the Brexit age from Mrs Thatcher's tussles with Europe? And was the Iron Lady right about those brittle journalists? I couldn't possibly comment. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And while you're with us, do give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We really do appreciate it. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.